Well, very good morning and welcome to the York City Church live stream uh, for the final time, potentially, uh, unless, of course, things all change in the next few weeks and months. My name's Alan Rose. Uh, it's great to have you watching in this morning and we're going to go to a scripture reading now. Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path that sinners tread or sit in the seat of scoffers but their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law they meditate day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in its season, and their leaves do not wither. In all that they do they prosper. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The following day they came to Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. On Peter's arrival, Cornelius met him and falling at his feet, worshipped him. But Peter made him get up, saying, Stand up, I am only a mortal. And as he talked with him, he went in and found that many had assembled. And he said to them, You yourselves know that it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with or to visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. Now may I ask why you have sent for me? Cornelius replied, Four days ago, at this very hour, at three o'clock, I was praying in my house, when suddenly a man in dazzling clothes stood before me. He said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your arms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying at the home of Simon, a tanner by the sea. Therefore I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. So now all of us are here in the presence of God to listen to all that the Lord has commanded you to say. Then Peter began to speak to them. I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation everyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You know the message he sent to the people of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That message spread throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John announced, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses to all that he did, both in Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who are chosen by God as witnesses, and who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one ordained by God as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. 
the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter said, Can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they invited him to stay for several days. Well, what an interesting couple of texts that we've heard this morning from Psalm 1 and from Acts chapter 10. I'm going to be focusing on that reading from Acts 10, uh, which is the continuation of what we heard last week. And uh, we're going to be exploring some of the details of this text together. But to get us going, I wanted to pose this interesting question, which is how many conversions have you had? I don't mean how many people have you helped to come to a living faith in Jesus, or to put it in maybe in the vernacular, how many people have you led to the Lord? What I mean is how many experiences of conversion have you personally had? Okay, that's an odd question, isn't it? Broadly speaking, Christians tend to identify just one moment of conversion in their lives, a conversion from either no faith, or some other faith, to a faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. That's generally what we mean as conversion. And a large proportion of pastoral work amongst the church and the community of God's people uh, is quite appropriately directed toward helping believers to grapple with the realities of what has happened to them in that conversion, what it means for them, how to be confident in it, how to live Uh, live up to and out of this sense of conversion. And so it's extremely valuable for the spiritual health of the church to be convinced that God's work of salvation, that conversion work, if you like, in our lives is secure. Uh, However, at the same time, it's also possibly true to say that the, the, the line between confidence and complacency can be a fine one. Now, I understand this is a strange place to begin a sermon, but we heard a story in the reading from the second half of Acts chapter 10 that has very much to do with conversion. A man called Cornelius, whom we met last week, uh, a a Roman centurion, a Gentile, a man of some uh, influence, a man who was also quite devout and seeking after God. Uh, This man, Cornelius, along with his friends and his family, hear the good news of Jesus Christ and enjoy a dramatic conversion experience. Uh, I know sometimes when we read the book of Acts and we read about the conversion experiences of the first Christians, we sometimes wonder, gosh, um, that's that's dramatic. uh, my, My conversion experience was nothing like that. But here we have this dramatic, powerful experience Uh, that includes being filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. Now, it's interesting to notice, as an aside perhaps, uh, that in this instance, it's the unmistakable evidence of the Holy Spirit being poured out on a group of people who were non-Jewish that makes it a no-brainer for Peter that they should be baptized, that they should also be admitted into I guess the, the people of God, uh, the, the, the people of God as, as the church. Now, Acts 10 began with God's initiative, didn't it? 
Do you remember Cornelius is praying and an angel of the Lord appears to Cornelius? And the story ends with God's spirit being poured out or poured into Cornelius and his friends and family as they heard the words that Peter was preaching. So again, on the face of it, this story, Acts chapter 10, is a conversion story, and it's a very important one at that. This is the first account in the book of Acts of a group of non-Jewish people becoming Christians. We've had Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch a couple of weeks ago with Pete Rayner taught us, but this is a group of non-Jews. And so this is a, a very important story in the, in the overall plot of the book of Acts. But there's another conversion story in Acts chapter 10. And it's a conversion story that is arguably more important. Arguably. The other conversion story in Acts chapter 10 is about Peter, the apostle. If you were watching or listening last week, you would have heard me say that Peter is not exactly a shining example in this story. He's a bit on the slow side, uh, perhaps compared to Cornelius, uh, so that when uh, this heavenly vision occurs, he's a little bit slow. He, He denies God three times again. And he's maybe even portrayed as slightly less devout than Cornelius. Maybe. And perhaps most Profoundly, he could be accused of being slightly hypocritical because of his uh, proclaimed piety that proves to be a little bit of a sham because he's staying with somebody who uh, works with animal carcasses and that means it's unclean. And so there's all kinds of ways that a story perhaps portrays Peter as not exactly being a perfect example. And so we find in this story that there's a bit of a conversion that happens for Peter. Now, I don't mean that he becomes a Christian in this story, but there are three key moments that indicate for us that something has happened to him, that something has gone on inside Peter, that there's been a shift, a transition, a conversion of sorts. The first of those indications is that Peter Peter says to Cornelius and his gang when he turns up to speak to them, You yourselves know that it's unlawful for a Jew to associate with or to visit a Gentile, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or unclean. So something has happened to Peter that he regards as being God's initiative. God has shown me that I must not regard anybody as as common or profane or unclean. These are all kind of Jewish categories, by the way, that are about the separateness of Jew and Gentile. But when exactly did God show Peter that? Well, perhaps we might want to think back to the vision Peter has of the sheet coming down from heaven filled with all sorts of animals and the voice saying, Peter, rise up, kill and eat. And Peter's Uh, three times resisting the voice. And then the voice, presumably God's voice, it doesn't actually say that specifically, but we're led to assume that, says, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. Now notice there that God doesn't say about animals. He just says what God has made clean, you don't call profane, Peter. And Peter's confused about what to make of the vision. But by the time he arrives at Cornelius' house, the penny seems to have dropped. God has shown me that I shouldn't regard anyone 
profane or unclean. So how did Peter make this jump from food, which is part of Jewish ceremonial piety and life, to people, from animals to Cornelius and his household? It very obviously didn't happen like that in an instant, but it seems that Peter has come to gradually understand what God is getting at as the various God-initiated events unfolded around him. And I mean, there's quite a lot of God-initiated events. Angels, visions, heavenly voices, and surprise visitors all come together. And it kind of forms the context in which Peter reflects and realizes, I think God's doing something here, until he finally finds himself standing before a Gentile family who are primed and ready to hear the gospel. So that's the first indicator. Peter can say, God has shown me that I shouldn't call anyone profane or unclean. Something's changed. He's had some kind of conversion experience in that his attitude towards others has been changed. Note, at God's initiative. That's important. The second indicator comes as Peter begins to preach to the group in Cornelius' house. Peter says, I truly understand that God shows no partiality. That is an absolute bombshell moment, by the way. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now, you must understand that as a Jew, Peter understood full well that God chose Israel out of all the peoples on the earth to be his treasured possession. God set his love on Israel. God called them to be his, to enter into a covenant relationship, a special, unique relationship between Yahweh God and Israel. But only now is Peter coming to see that the privilege of election is a privilege for the sake of all peoples. You see, election so quickly can become a privilege for me, for myself to enjoy and rejoice in, that very quickly forgets that you are called to be for the sake of others. And Israel's call was to be a light to the nations, to provoke the nations to a sense of jealousy over their relationship with the one true living God. And that all nations would flock to, the, to Israel, to flock to the temple, to fellowship with God, to know God. They were always intended to be this people. But it's only really now in this text, or now in the light of the death and resurrection of Jesus, or rather the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that Israel has come to maturity and God's plan is being fulfilled. That needs a little bit more expanding. The New Testament doesn't just portray Jesus as God's Son beamed down from heaven to earth, but he portrays, the New Testament portrays Jesus as 
as the divine king and lord, but also as the man who gathers up in himself the very identity of Israel. When you read the New Testament, a lot of the time you need to think Jesus is Israel. This is God's Israel. He is doing what God always intended for Israel, for his people. Israel as a people is summed up and represented in the person of Jesus. Now, it's also true to say that Israel, in some senses, represented the whole of humanity on the earth, that God's love for all that he has made and his purposes for them are somehow caught up in the purposes that God has for Israel, so that when we understand that Jesus represents Israel, somehow all of humanity is also gathered up in Jesus as well. But for this text this morning... Jesus is the fullness, if you like, the maturing of God's purposes for Israel. He represents them. And now in this text, Peter is able to say, I now understand God shows no partiality. He has understood that the privilege of election and the person of Jesus and the opening up of, the, of, of God's purposes and the gospel for all peoples is beginning to happen. Okay? It's a massively important moment in the book of Acts, and it's massively important for us as Christians to grapple with. In some senses, we're only really here today as Christians because of what happened in this text, in some ways. So that's two indications that Peter's had some kind of conversion. Something's happened in his heart. He's understood something. He's reflected on all this stuff and a penny has dropped. Now, the third indication is that as Peter preaches to Cornelius and his household that Jesus is Israel's king or Messiah who was sent to the people of Israel, he can now add to that declaration, dec- the- 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 easy for you to say, he can now add to that the declaration that Jesus is Lord of all. Jesus is the divine king who now commands the allegiance of all peoples, whether Jew or Gentile. So there's three, and there's possibly even more, but for this morning's sake, there are three indications that Peter, something's happened, something has shifted and changed in Peter. Some kind of conversion has occurred in him. So in this story then about the conversion of Cornelius, we've got this additional conversion story going on that is perhaps equally as important, if not a little bit more so. Both conversion stories are utterly, utterly dependent upon the initiative of God. God starts it all. God interferes. God disrupts things so that God's purpose can be furthered. The story of the spread of Christianity from a a small Jewish sect in the first century to a worldwide phenomenon can be described using sociological terms, perhaps, but it can only really be adequately understood in theological terms. In other words, God did this, and God still does this, And God will continue to do this because Jesus Christ is Lord of all. So now I want to take these ideas about Peter's conversion 
uh, touch on some of these indicators that Peter has had a big shift in terms of his heart and understanding and try and tease out from there some of the implications for us as a church and in one particularly important way. I mean, you might be able to guess what it is. I want to address for us briefly, and it's always going to seem too brief, really, but I want to address for us the issue of the church and Christians and racism. This story in Acts 10 needs to be interpreted as scripture for the ongoing faith and practice of Christian communities. It's good to describe what's happening. In fact, it's important to analyze and describe because the failure to analyze and describe and look at the language and what's happening leads to all kinds of slightly erroneous interpretations. But we need to be able to hear what is happening in the text in order to be able to move forwards and allow the questions it raises and the answers it gives to shape and form the way that we perceive our own life and our own faith and practice as Christians in the world today. So let me give you a first move here then in terms of interpreting this particular story for the church, but framed around the issue of, of racism. I don't think that the contemporary conversation about race and racism can simply be mapped onto Acts chapter 10, shoehorned in somehow and, and made to fit uh, and made to sort of correlate as if they could both neatly slide together and, and, and match because there are all kinds of complications uh, in terms of the, the issues that Acts 10 is dealing with and contemporary kind of issues that we face today. That, that means it's not quite as straightforward as just going, well, that is that and vice versa. It doesn't necessarily work like that. It's not appropriate to force our contemporary questions into the Bible or, or even to read our own cultural answers into what the Bible says. So we need to take the Bible more seriously as Scripture in order to hear how the answers Scripture gives to the issues that it raises itself may become answers to our own cultural issues. Because for, as Christians, we confess these texts to be Scripture. This collection of documents is holy Scripture for us. It's revelation. It's God's inspired communication to us. And so we have to pay attention to that and then learn to apply, for want of a better word, what we hear and see in a different context. So, for example, the segregation of Jew and Gentile in the first century, and that's the issue that we're facing as we read Acts chapter 10. The segregation of Jew and Gentile there is not the same thing as contemporary racism in the 21st century, but it is absolutely definitely on the same kind of trajectory. And that trajectory is a trajectory which God has both judged and begun to reverse in and through Jesus Christ, the gift of the Holy Spirit and the church. Now, there's all kinds of ways that that could all be unpacked. And that's a very dense statement. 
But again and again and again, what we see in the text is the initiative of God to overcome sinful tendencies in people in order that his purposes might be furthered and fulfilled. What we need as Christians in a context where racism is all around us and is, is, the, is the topic of the day, the issue of the day, is to seek God, to call on God to do the kind of changing and transforming work in us that only God can truly accomplish. Now that will require all kinds of conversation and good listening and understanding as well. But we have to grapple with the reality that God is the initiator in these things. It's not simply a human agenda that we can recruit God for, but it is God's heart and purpose. And as we listen to Acts chapter 10 and other texts that touch on these issues, we must learn how God works to overcome them. Now, following on from there, tackling racism among us, and now I mean among us as perhaps city church, because I don't want to assume, as wonderful as we all are, that we're all completely free from tendencies towards racism, whether, <laughs> whether overt or just jokingly, naively, inappropriately casual. It will require us to repent of partiality. Peter says, now I know that God shows no partiality. He's wrestled with this. He's looked at all that's going on. He's reflected on the vision, on the divine voice. He's come to some kind of conclusion. Now I know. And there's a turning. There's a turning from one perspective to something new. And so on one level, this is actually quite straightforward. With the help of the Holy Spirit, we need to be proactive as Christians in rooting out our sinful, ingrained preference for sameness, or to give it its big grown-up word, homogeneity. Loving those who are like us, subtly excluding those who are different laughing and mocking that which is other because we feel uncomfortable and making jokes about it makes us help, helps to make us feel a little bit more secure when we feel insecure. What makes that simultaneously harder and yet uniquely Christian, and you're so pleased about that, aren't you? You know, the uniquely Christian approach here is harder. I'm sorry, it is. It's just more difficult. Is that we must learn to love others who are not the same as us, through God. We love other people through God and for God's sake, not simply for their sake. And there's a strong, long-lasting Christian theological tradition that understands this. And it understands this because it sees that God is the source and the end of all men and women, of all people everywhere. And God is ultimately the God, the only being who should be enjoyed and loved for its own sake. All other things need to be enjoyed and loved for God's sake. And because human beings are created in the image of God and are created for God, and that God is their ultimate joy and end and, and delight, whether they realize that or not, the most loving thing that any human person can do for another human person is to love them towards their end in God, 
is to direct them to God as their ultimate fulfillment. And so I need to point out in this context that some of the secular discussion about race is not appropriate for Christians to embrace. And it's not appropriate because it does not understand and notice or even acknowledge that God is the final end of all people. For us as Christians to love the other who is either well, from another part of, the, of our social strata or from another nation is not to make a big deal just out of the person as different, but is to love them towards God because that is where all of us are heading. So we don't love anybody purely for their own sake, but we love all those who are like us, those who are not like us, through God. Otherwise, what can happen is that the other becomes ultimate and God simply becomes a means to an end rather than the glorious end in himself that God is. So my appeal to you is as you listen or engage with the subject of racism as it is portrayed through secular media, through news outlets, through all kinds of different contexts that you think as a Christian and you think as one who knows and understands that loving another person is loving them through God, not just simply on their own with reference to God, but as one who is on a journey towards God as well. That is the theological approach to loving and serving the other. Now, finally, tackling the issue of racism is a discipleship issue. In a couple of weeks' time, we're going to be having a story Sunday that will look explicitly at Christians and, and racism. And I had the pleasure of speaking to somebody, uh, a young woman who was, uh, who was part of City Church uh, a few years ago as a student. Uh, and uh, she was a young black woman who, uh, who had some great things to say about her experiences of City Church and her experiences of growing up in a predominantly black church and her thoughts about all that's happened in the last year around the, the, the subject of racism. And this young woman was, was profoundly deep in talking about the issue of discipleship, that we're all disciples of Jesus. And so it's a question of deepening a sense of what that means for us. And that's one way and a significant way that we can tackle issues of race. Let me try and pack that out a bit. This is a discipleship issue because, as Peter says, Jesus is Lord of all. He's not just my Lord. He is Lord of all people. And one other way of articulating that could be this. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Completely level. Therefore, Jesus cannot and simply will not be the divine legitimator of any kind of prejudice against other kinds of people, including, I might say, those who choose to judge others for their prejudice based on their own ideas about what prejudice is. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Now, racism, somewhat ironically, actually, preaches the fall 
to Western liberal values that vainly imagine that human beings have the capacity to be substantially better without God's intervention. You know, we have been now for quite some time, we've, we've lived in a context where it's all, we can better ourselves, we can, by being more tolerant and more accepting of people, we can, we can get better as a society. And if nothing else, the last year has proved to us the utter vanity of that position, that any kind of concept of the whole of society changing substantially for the better without reference to God crumbles away. And the horrific abuse and oppression of people of other races in the last year have just proved and preached the fall to our ideas that we're all getting better. The cross, as the place where justice and mercy and lordship come together and hold together in the person of Jesus, proclaims that reconciliation and healing can only be achieved by God's sacrificial victory over sin. To shift it into the terms of Ephesians 2, God in Christ has abolished the dividing wall between Jew and non-Jew and has created one new person in place of the two in Christ Jesus. Paul's talking about the church there, the people of God, as a people now united under one head, Jesus, now no longer under Adam, the broken, sinful one who is the source in many ways of all the the fractured communities and the, the sin that we see all around us. The cross proclaims only, the, only God's victory over sin can heal and reconcile. And the resurrection announces that the new world is indeed coming where there will be no sin, any sin, including racism. But it's the resurrection there that's so important, isn't it? Because we are awaiting new heavens and earth. It is not... Christian's responsibility to change the current world into the new heavens and the new earth. We cannot accomplish that. As surely as we did not raise Jesus from the dead by our own prayers, (laughs) the new heavens and the new earth will not break in upon us by means of our own efforts. But God, who has raised Jesus from the dead, will do for the whole cosmos what he has done for Christ. And we also will be caught up with him when he does. So let me ask you again, then, as I come to close, how many conversions have you had? And I wonder how might God be taking the initiative in your life to disrupt your prejudices, perhaps even your piety, in order to accomplish his saving purposes in York? And for you to reflect on, what do you think repenting of partiality or blatant racism in your life might look like? And here's a clue. It won't look like a feeling. It won't look like some religious moment. It will look like a change of attitude and posture towards the other. And some changed practices that go along with the confession that Jesus is not simply 
your Lord, but the Lord of all. Well, God bless you today. Before they stop the cameras, though, it's probably important for me to say a few things because this is the last one of these for some time. And there have been a lot of people who have made this possible, and it's really important to acknowledge them. Three of them are in the room with me this morning. Uh, Phil Harmon has been the linchpin for making all this work. Without Phil's knowledge and expertise and commitments, you would have just had me yakking away on a YouTube recording, which would be rubbish. Um, but thanks to Phil, this has all happened. Kieran Scotchbrook has been wonderful in bringing his technical expertise to this. We've got Alex Stewart and Rachel Sanders here this morning, our wonderful FPs, who uh, have been also instrumental in pulling this all off. Um, there has been Hannah Whitcomb. There has been uh, John Atkinson, whose voice you have heard on some of the voiceovers, the scripture readings. We've had Sam Brown in with us helping. Uh, we have had, who else have we had? Mike Cromwell, Mikey Cromwell, of course. He's not here today, how could I forget? Mikey has been an absolute beast in terms of this all working out. And not to mention all the different readers that I uh, felt guilty about asking you again and again to read things, but you've done a wonderful job. This couldn't have happened at all without these people. Uh, and I want to ask you, please, that in to today, in the, the Zoom time later, but also in the following weeks, please will you thank them? Uh, they didn't have to do this, but they've done this out of love for the church and out of love for God. And it's right to give honour to people uh, where, where honour is due. And, and I want to say to you that it is due to these guys. So please thank them and honour them. Okay. That's probably it for the moment, and uh, I will look forward to seeing you on our Zoom call later, and then in person tonight in the prayer meeting, but also next week on Sunday morning here together at the Citadel in the Booth Hall. Have a great afternoon, and have a great week. God bless. <laughs>